Hey everyone, welcome to episode one of what really is an impromptu interview series. If you're watching this video, you're either familiar with me or my guest. Now, I'm doing this stepping out of my comfort zone, but I've always wanted to do a fireside, long-form interview-slash-podcast type video. What better way to step out of my comfort zone than with someone that I'm most comfortable with? Uh, Stefan Ryback, I've known for over 15 years, is a friend, a mentor, uh, a business associate, and now he is a published author. Uh, Stefan gave me about an hour of his time. We went overboard, about an hour and a half, but we did not prep. We did not uh, share answers to questions, and we just turned the cameras on and rolled. So what you'll see here was earlier today. I'm editing it down now, but Stefan has a great story. He has the voice of God, and he really is inspirational, and his book is helping people across the country and he's seeing great success. So hopefully uh, you'll find this interview interesting, you'll learn some things, and all of Stefan's information will be down below if you want to get in touch with him. Hopefully you guys like this, and hopefully they'll be in episode two. So stay tuned and enjoy the episode. And with me today, Stefan Ryback, father, husband, businessman, and now we could say author of his newly released book, The Shadow on My Heart, debuted April 1st within Amazon's Top 10, alongside the greats of Paul McCartney, Lenny Kravitz, Tina Turner. Uh, we, couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't get any of those people on, but we got Stefan on. I'm glad to know him personally, and I read the book, and I said, I have to start a podcast, and I have to have Stefan as my first guest. So Stefan, thank you for coming. Oh, Chris, it is a pleasure and an honor to be with you, especially since it is your first one. And I'm so happy to be able to uh, talk to you about my new book, which is uh, the debut, uh, to debut on the same chart in the top 10, uh, along with Lenny Kravitz and Tina Turner and Paul McCartney and a book about George Harrison and Eric Clapton is just mind-boggling to me. It's not something that uh, that I expected to happen, but it did. Now, you landed with those artists because your book technically has a music influence to it, a radio influence with your experience in radio. So the Amazon algorithm ranked it in that genre, but you're also ranking for Christianity, bereavement, and we'll get into the book, but there is a musical background, if you can't tell from Stefan's uh, setting, uh, that you do have a uh, large uh, music history alongside the personal history that's in this book. Well, I got into radio in uh, 1977. I was a uh, broadcast journalism major at the University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And uh, in the spring semester of my freshman year, I was extremely fortunate to land my first full-time job in radio which was at my hometown radio station, WWCO, in Waterbury, Connecticut. So I was going to college full-time and working full-time in radio at the same time, and I was extremely fortunate because, you know, my classmates were trying to figure out what internships they were going to try to go after, and here I was getting a full-time job in my chosen field in the spring semester of my freshman year. So I've been very, very, very fortunate. And you see the gold records and the platinum records and the different uh, memorabilia hanging on my wall. It's just, you know, from being in the business for 44 plus years and being in the right place at the right time and very, very blessed to have been so. 
So now that is the Stefan that I know, and even working with you in radio, after I read this book, it was a completely new Stefan. It was peeling the layers of the onion. What made you write the book and go so deep and so transparent with your family, as opposed to making it more of a, a rock and roll type book? What was the driving cause of making this book as personal as it is? Great question, Chris. You know, growing up, I always knew when I was going to write a book. It's just something that has been with within me since my earliest memories. I, I always knew I was going to write a book. And uh, one year it was going to be this topic. And the next year it was going to be that topic. And I never really got around to writing the book for whatever reason. A little over five years ago, I had surprise open heart surgery. And by surprise, I mean that I was diagnosed with a very, very serious genetic heart disease that I had had since before birth. It's a disease that actually develops as the embryo is developing within the mother's womb. And it was something that I was born with and I never knew about it. And a little over five years ago, I was starting to experience some symptoms of the disease. The, the disease is called bicuspid aortic valve disease. And a little over five years ago, the disease was starting to manifest outwardly. And I had some testing done. I had a lot of testing done, actually. And uh, at that time, I was told that I had to have a very highly invasive open heart surgery. I had to have valve replacement. And I also had a large aortic aneurysm. And I was told that if the aneurysm wasn't repaired, it was very likely that at some point the aneurysm was going to burst and uh, I'd be dead in about 20 or 30 seconds. So wow. it, was, it was just life-changing uh, medical diagnosis. And I was told I had to have the operation. You got to have this done stuff on in the next one to two weeks. And the doctor said, you know, his recommendation would be to have it sooner rather than, than later. So have it in the next week or so. But if you got to push it to uh, the second week, but I wouldn't recommend that. So I was also told I had a three-month recovery period. So it was a pretty long recovery period. So I said to myself, you know, I'm going to be laying around. I'm going to be sitting around for three months. Uh, if I'm going to write this book, that would be a good time to write the book. Well, little did I know it was going to take me five years to write the book. So I started writing it during my recovery period from open heart surgery, but it took me a lot longer than three months. It took me five years to write it. And, and really, Chris, the hardest part of writing the book was not actually writing it. You know, when I finally sat down at my desktop to write, the book just kind of wrote itself. The hardest part in that, that entire five-year period was coming to terms with how much I wanted to reveal. You know, I would like to think that people know me as a very upbeat, positive, self-motivated person. And I, and I believe that I am. But little do people know that, that I grew up in a very, very toxic, very turbulent household. So growing up with that and dealing with that all my life, you know, you, do you really want to tell people that your father was abusive? You know, did I really want to tell people that my, my mother was an alcoholic? Did I really want to admit to my own shortcomings as a person? Did I really want to admit to the world that uh, at one time in my life, I took drugs? And so that was the hardest part. Th those were the things that I really struggled with. And 
the conclusion that I came to was that I had to reveal those things in the book. You know, I don't know if I'm ever going to write a second book or a third book. My goal in life was not to write multiple books. My goal in life was to write one book. And so I, I, I thought to myself, you know, this is the one book that I have been thinking about all my life. This is it. And so when I'm gone, this book will still be here. What did I want this book to stand for? I decided at the end of the day that I wanted the book to stand for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, <laughs> no matter how hurtful the truth was. And my, my other feeling, Chris, was that anybody reading the book would see the truth coming through the words, and they may not necessarily feel comfortable with the story because there's a lot of uncomfortable things that I talk about, but that they would respect the story for its brutal honesty. And you've read the book, you know, it's a very honest book. Yeah. And I also feel like that honesty was necessary to building the character of you, but also kind of a backstory or a prequel. You could, could have made this two separate books, you know, before the surgery and after. So that leads me to my next question from the bookmaking process. Was it, a domino effect of let's start from day zero of Stefan's life to where we are today? Or were you coming up with ways to articulate certain aspects of your life where you were placing them out of order, but in the order of the way the book reads? Well, the decision was made to start the book with the story of how I came to find out about my heart disease and how I went through that experience, the surgery and the recovery. And what, we what I discovered is that I wanted to weave in the story of my mother. My mother was born and raised in southeastern Poland. She was a farm girl, and uh, she was born in 1925. Well, in 1941, uh, my mother was 16 years old, so she's in high school. And she leaves home one day, uh, you know, says goodbye to her family and leaves for school, and she never comes back. And the reason she never comes back home is that she was kidnapped by Nazi soldiers. What they had done is they had rounded up a, bu a bunch of able-bodied Polish kids and uh, kidnapped them. So my mother was kidnapped. Think about that, walking to high school wow. one day at the age of 16. And she is brought to the Ravensbrück prisoner of war camp where she stayed about nine or 10 months. And then somehow... My mother was chosen to be taken out of Ravensbrück and for the rest of the time in Germany. She was in Germany for uh, the slave labor part of her life in Germany was four years. So from the ages of 16 wow. to 20, she was a slave laborer. And my mother was a very powerful, very dynamic woman. She was certainly a deeply flawed person. I mentioned a few minutes ago that my, uh, my mother was an alcoholic, but she was an incredible woman, especially when she wasn't drunk. And I thought that the book would benefit if I told her story. And, you know, I learned a lot of things from my mother growing up. And one of the things that I learned, one of the many things that I learned from my mother is how to overcome adversity. So when I initially started writing the book, it was going to be a story about how my mother taught me to face life's greatest challenges head on and deal with them in a very straightforward manner to overcome the adversity. During the 
process, the early, the early process of writing the book, I, I, I came to some gaps in my mother's story. The more digging I did, the more I realized that there was a lot more to my mother's story that I didn't know. And so I started talking to my elder siblings about it. And as it turned out, my eldest sister, Barbara, who's 12 years older than me, was a source for a lot of information about my mother and my father, things that I never, ever knew. So think about this. I just went through a very serious heart operation when I started write, writing the book, I'm recovering. And my thought was to write a kind of a romantic book about <laughs> how my mother helped me overcome adversity. And then during that process, I learned that my mother hid some very serious information from me, some very, very powerful and tragic stories, not just about from her time in Germany, but also the interactions between her and my father. My mother, I always felt from, from a, a younger age that my mother was protecting me and her, her protection mechanism went beyond me just being a kid. There were things that my mother hid from me to even after I grew up and got married and moved out of the house. I learned some really interesting things about my mother from my eldest sister that for whatever reason, my mother just, just didn't tell me. And you know, my mother didn't talk a lot about the war. She was deeply affected by that experience. Who wouldn't be? And also, um, my parents had a very, very turbulent marriage. You know, my memories from a young kid is, it was a lot of fighting and yelling and bickering and a lot of just unpleasant back and forth. And so I think my mother felt a responsibility for whatever reason to protect me from that. You know, I was the youngest of six. I was, even when my, again, after I got married and moved out of the house, up until my mother's later years, she always called me her baby. So for some reason, she felt a need to protect me from these things. And so I, I learned a lot of information from my elder sister, Barbara, that just kind of stunned me. And so they made their way into the book. And that's how I got into, you know, weaving in my heart surgery to my mother's experience as a slave laborer. And then I get into my father's experience. My father was born and raised in Warsaw, and he joined the Polish army to fight against Germany in World War II. And of course, everybody knows that the Polish army didn't, didn't do too well uh, against uh, the Germans. At the time, Germany had the most advanced military in the right. world, and, and the Germans just crushed uh, the Polish fighting forces. So my father was wounded in battle. Uh, he was shot in the wrist and in the knee, and he was in a prisoner of war camp for five and a half years. So think about that. My mother was a slave laborer from the ages of 16 to 20 for four years. And my father was in a prisoner of war camp for five and a half years. And so you have two people who were deeply, deeply affected in a, in a negative way by World War II. So the fact that, that uh, my father was an abusive man, it doesn't mean he was a bad person. He was not an evil person, but he was a deeply troubled man. And the way that he expressed himself, my recollection as a kid, was always yelling and screaming or looking to find fault with something. And then uh, my mother's 
experience as a slave laborer. So in essence, Chris, both my mother and father were, were dealing with we, what we would diagnose nowadays as PTSD. So right. think about that. Yep. And it's interesting, too, because, I mean, what they went through, you can't even, I mean, you can't even imagine it. You can't even can't picture it in your head. And, and like you said, some of the stuff, even with my grandparents, that whole time period is unspoken. Like, we just didn't ask them. And I didn't have a reason to because I wasn't writing a book, so we never got that information. But let's talk about how now your mother's drinking and her behavior doubled with your interest in, in school and your professor pushing you, pushed you to this alter ego of getting you comfortable living at, at, as Steph in the Night on radio and kind of that escapism that when you left the house and left your mother who was drinking, you kind of just became a different person on radio and felt comfortable there. I mean, was that just the lights were switched and brought to your attention like, all right, this is my escape. Uh, um, I got a microphone in front of my face. I, I sound good. Uh, I'm in the music scene. Was it as instant as it sounded in the book or were you, you know, did you stumble the first few times when you were on radio? Well, you know, in, in high school, I was a jock. Uh, I went to Holy Cross High School in Waterbury, Connecticut. A sports jock, not a radio jock. No, a sports jock. Exactly, a sports jock. I I, I played uh, basketball at Holy Cross. To this day, is known as a basketball school. I mean, they they do yep. really well in in most every sport. But the one thing that they're most known for, uh, and have been pretty much from the beginning, is basketball. And so I played uh, basketball for Holy Cross in my freshman year, and I got cut in my <laughs> sophomore year. And I uh, was just kind of lost in my sophomore year because I didn't have basketball, uh, but I still had the sports jock mentality. So I'm, I'm picking out my courses for my junior year of high school. And again, sports jock mentality is you want to take the easiest course possible so you yep. don't have to work, work very hard, <laughs> but still get a good grade. And uh, I was looking at the course offerings for my junior year. And one of the things on the list was an elective called Mass media yep. 101 an overview of radio television and print and i said man you know i like listening to the radio and again this is the mid-70s so there's just radio tv and newspaper and I, and I liked all three so i said well that sounds like an easy course i won't have to work very hard but i'll still get a good grade and i walk into the first day of class and the person standing at the front of the class was the instructor for mass media 101 Brother Larry Lucier, brother of Holy Cross, and I had had him earlier for English, and he was a very nice man, but he was very strict, uh, and he was very firm, very fair, but very strict and very firm. And one of the things that that happened when I had him for English was uh, he he uh, compelled us to do a lot of writing, and I remember one class he passed out the papers uh, that, that he had graded. And um, I got an A on that paper. I got an A on the paper. And at the end of the class, he said, Stefan, I would like to speak with you one-on-one -on -one after class. So I figured he was going to congratulate <laughs> me on the A that I got because Brother Larry didn't give A's out uh, very easily. He was, again, he was a fair guy, but he was a tough guy, really pushed his students and I went up to him after class, and again, thinking that he was going to congratulate me on getting an A, and he said, Stefan, you are, without a doubt, the best writer in this class, but I just want to let you know that un unless you start giving me 
your best work. I'm not going to give you A's anymore. When I grade your work against what I'm getting from the rest of the class, it's an A. But I'm going to start grading your work based on what I think you're capable of. So you need to start giving me your best efforts because if you don't, this is the last A you're going to get in class. Wow. And so that was my experience with Brother Larry from English. I walk into Mass Media 101, you know, and back at the time, the nickname for Brother Larry was Brother Larry Hardass because he was, he was a hardass and that's how high school kids talk. So I go into the mass media class thinking it's going to be this easy thing. And I see Brother Larry Hardass at the, uh, at the front of the <laughs> class. And I remember, you know, writing down in my notebook that very first, within the first few minutes of that class, I just can't catch a break is what I wrote in my notebook. And my intention was to drop the class and, and uh, take another elective. But for whatever reason, I didn't drop the class. And it was a fascinating experience. And during the time that I was in Mass Media 101, I took a great interest in the media. And Brother Larry gave every student a different semester assignment. And the assignment he gave me was to call the local, one of the local radio stations and shadow one of the disc jockeys. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. It had to be done over the course of, you know, four or five or six weeks. So going to the station, watching what the jock did on the air, watching what the jock did uh, behind the scenes, going on remotes and uh, different outside events that the station was doing and seeing how the jock interacted with people. And during the course of that project, I became very entranced with radio. And again, that's my junior year of high school. And that class impacted me so much that I took Mass Media 102 in my senior year. And by that time, I was really hooked uh, into media and especially radio. I had made friends with the disc jockey who helped me out with that project. We're still friends to this day. So I ended up going to the University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut as a journalism communications major, broadcast journalism. And as I said a few minutes ago, I had been hanging out at the radio station uh, for two years. I started out as just a kid doing a, a school project, and I became a gopher, glorified intern. I was doing anything I could just to be in the environment. I found it so exciting and so captivating. And the other thing that you mentioned, Chris, is that it was my escape from my very toxic home environment. And in my freshman year, I get the job as the overnight disc jockey at my hometown top 40 radio station. And my on-air name was Steph in the nighttime. So again, I'm, I'm living this very toxic home environment. My parents were divorced by that time. My parents split up. I was like 13 or 14 years old. So by the time I got into, um, you know, into college, I'm now 18 or 19 years old. And I developed the persona of Steph in the nighttime. So my mom was drinking. There was a lot of unpleasant things happening at home, which is why I, I couldn't wait to get to the radio station every night and do the all-night show because I was this on-air personality in my hometown. And back in 1977, Chris, radio was the social network. 1977, as I said, we had radio, we had television, we had newspapers, and we had magazines. Cell phones were a gazillion years away. There right. was no cell phones, there was no AOL, there was no email, <laughs> there was no texting. Radio 
was the social network. So I was kind of sort of a celebrity in my own hometown playing all the music from 1977, the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton and Boston and on and on and on. It was just so much fun. And people were listening to the radio very, very actively. And no matter what we did, the community, the Waterbury area in Connecticut just gave us such a great response. So I'm, I'm 18, 19 years old, and I'm a celebrity in my hometown radio station. It was great. It was really, really wonderful. Interesting. And I'm going to be flashing uh, the images of you and your celebrities that you have met. Now, one of the underlying themes of the book is that faith, is that Catholic and Christianity undertones. You're starting to tell the story about how you do this because of this, or this person was in your life because you know they pushed you to do this. Are you starting to see a divine intervention of these puzzle pieces all coming through? Everything has been happening for a reason, whether it's you passed out and you found out about the heart condition, you were on the bed for three months, you wrote the book, you know, your mom treated you this way, so you excelled in radio. Are we seeing that through the book, and that's why it's relating to the religious side of the audience that's uh, gravitating towards this book? You know, Chris... Although my mother was a deeply flawed person, she was a a woman of great faith. And one of the gifts that I got from my mother was the gift of faith. And that started when my mother insisted, insisted that we go to the eight o'clock Polish mass at St. Stanislaus Polish Church in Waterbury, Connecticut. So even after I got the job as the overnight disc jockey, I'd get off the air at six o'clock and I'm exhausted because I'd been there since 10 o'clock the previous night. So I'd been at the radio station from 10 at night till six in the morning. I get home at 6.30, quarter to seven, whatever time it was. And, uh, you know, mom says I got to bring her to the eight o'clock Polish mass, which we had been going to since I was a young kid. So I was also, I'm also a product of a Catholic grammar school and a Catholic high school. So religion has uh, always played a major role in my home, fl- home life and in my personal life. And I, um, you know, I wasn't so, I don't want to say that I didn't take an interest in religion, but it was more of an interest in spirituality. I was very, I was very captivated and I still am to this day in the concepts of spirituality and understanding, trying to understand my maker, uh, trying to understand the, my maker's will for my life. And so the subcurrent, if you will, of the book, the book is titled The Shadow on My Heart. The three subcurrents are faith, family, and forgiveness. And so faith is a, a, is a major part of the book. It's a major part of me. And you mentioned divine intervention. You know, you know when I look back, on the puzzle pieces of my life. And is it, isn't it interesting that I had the specific mother that I had that taught me different things that I needed to know in my journey? Isn't it interesting that I had Brother Larry Lucier as my mass medial 101 teacher who gave me the semester project of going to the radio station? He could right. have given that project to anybody in that class, but he gave it specifically to me because during the course of the semester building up to that project, he noticed that I had an interest in radio. So he figured that that would be a good assignment for me. And isn't it great that I had a teacher 
who took such a, a personal interest, a very deep personal interest to get to know me and to, to get a sense of what my interests were at that time and to give me the specific semester project, which in turn would lead to a career in the media that's lasted 44 plus years. Wow. Isn't that pretty yeah. astounding? You're right. And I think, too, every student has that one teacher that not only befriended them, but also pushed them to excel to that next level. Because, like you said, we can take classes where we just, you know, put our feet on the desk and, you know, show up and get an A. Not with Brother Larry. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, everyone does that. But also it sticks with someone, especially you're in that age where you can be molded into the ideal person. And there's a lot of that in the book of what creates the Stefan that we see in 2021. Let's fast forward to the release of the book, and we've dealt with, you know, the curveballs that you've come up in your life. There was a curveball with the release of the book from a marketing standpoint, from a release standpoint. So the book is all done. It's all ready. You're waiting to put it out in the world, and then, boom, another curveball with the release of the book happens. Can you talk to us about that? Well, I, uh, my publisher is Nico 11 Publishing. They're out of Wisconsin, and it's a boutique publishing firm, and I'm very, very fortunate to have connected with them. And just very briefly, I, I was working with someone else for about three years. Uh, very nice person, but for whatever reason, I, I just never felt a 100% connection with them. I, I was just so excited to have a literary agent uh, who would bring me to a publisher that uh, I overlooked the fact that we weren't really 100% match. So when I had an opportunity to opt out of that contract, I, I took it and uh, was uh, very, very fortunate to find Nico 11 Publishing out of Wisconsin. So we had made the decision earlier this year in early part of 2021 that the release date was going to be April 21st. My publisher was looking at the publishing calendar and he said, Stefan, uh, looks like middle or third week of April is a doable time for the release of your book. Do any of those dates, pick a Tuesday or Wednesday. He said, Stefan, books are typically released on a Tuesday or Wednesday. So he's the publisher. I'm just going by what he says, right? What do I know? I've never written a book before. I never published a book. So he said, pick a Tuesday or Wednesday, middle or third week of April. So I, I look and uh, April 21st is a Wednesday. And I chose that day to release my book uh, because it's my dad's birthday. If my dad were still alive, he would have been 100 and, 105 wow. on April 21st. So I said, okay, we'll wow. release the book on what would have been my, my dad's 105th birthday. And so, okay, you want to do a pre-release. You want to do a pre-order. Okay, let's do the pre-order on March 31st. So we had everything cast in stone or so we thought the pre-order is going to start on March 31st and then we'll do three weeks of pre-order, then actually put the book out on April 21st. And so we put the book out on pre-order on March 31st and about six hours into the pre-order, there was some sort of a glitch, and I don't, I don't think my publishers still figured out, some sort of a glitch happened with Amazon, and Amazon was saying that my book was sold out. How is it possible for a book that's on pre-order to be sold out? Right. Something, something had gone screwy. So this went on for about 24 hours, and I'm like, you know, it's my first book. 
and we're six hours into the pre-order, things look like they're going good, and then all of a sudden, the brakes go on, and everything is at a standstill. It's now about 7.30 in the morning on April 1st. My book had gone on pre-order the day before, so it's now the day after, April 1st. And about 7.30 in the morning, my publisher reaches out to me, and he said, Stefan, we got two options here. He said, for some reason, the link, the algorithm with the pre-order, I've never seen this before. I can't explain it, but if we want to keep the book on pre-order, then we're going to have to do a new link and this, that, and the other thing, or we have another option. And the other option was just to release the book. And I thought about it for maybe about three seconds. And I said, you know, what are we waiting for? Right. If we're ready to release the book now, then let's just release the book. And so an hour later at 8.31 in the morning on, uh, on April 1st, the book went on sale on Amazon. And much to my great surprise, within the first day, we landed in the top 10. Now listen to this category, rock band biographies. And again, Amazon's got all, the, all these different algorithms. Right. My book is not a rock band biography, but I guess the algorithm somehow saw the photos and the mentions to all of the different fa famous people that I've met. And a bunch of those photos you know, we're in the book, Phil Collins from Genesis and, and Mariah Carey. Vanilla Ice. Yeah, and on and on and on and on and on. So a lot of those photos in the book. So maybe it thought that my book was a rock band biography. And lo and behold, later on that day, we're in the top 10. The number one book that day huh. uh, in that category was a book about George Harrison and, uh, and Eric Clapton. Number two was Tina Turner's autobiography. <laughs> Number eight was the Lenny Kravitz autobiography. Number 10 was Paul McCartney's book about his song lyrics. And I'm at number nine and I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, <laughs> that is really, really cool. And, and it's funny too, because you kind of, no one didn't know who you were. So you have not only the fan base of your personal friends on Facebook, but also your business associates on LinkedIn. Thus, as soon as you decided to release the book that day, just putting a link out and sending people to Amazon, pole vaulted you up to that spot at number nine. And with that, people are getting the book fast. I got it in almost a day. I think I got it April 3rd. Isn't that amazing? And, yep, the, the, Amazon's taken over the world. So yeah. getting the book fast led me to read it faster and then left a review for you. You're also seeing reviews coming from all over the place on Amazon. All over the world. How has the reception been for people that got the book, read the book, and have left a, a message for you on Amazon? You know, Chris, the reviews have been really, really fantastic very very humbling but i i want to tell you that when i was in the process of writing the book i only had three goals you know so all this extra stuff that's happened have been beyond my three goals my first goal in writing the book was to write a book i could be proud of right as we discussed a lot of the subject matter is uncomfortable but I'm proud that I wrote it. I'm, I'm very proud that I revealed all of the things that I reveal in this book. So my first goal was to write a story I could be proud of. I'm really proud of this story. My second goal was to work with a publisher who respected the story. 
And as I said, I, I had an, a literary agent that I worked with early on in the process. Very, very nice person, a tremendous amount of literary agency experience. But in all the conversations that I had with this person, I, I never felt I never really felt that they personally connected to the story, not that they didn't like the story, not that they didn't respect the story, but I guess uh, the best way to put it is in all my conversations with them, I always got the feeling it was just another business transaction mm. for them. And I'm a business person. So, you know, on the one hand, I get it. It's just another book. But Again, I don't know if I'm ever going to write a book. So my feeling is, you know, this is, I'm going to treat this as, this as if this is the only book I'm ever going to write. And I didn't want it to be just another business transaction. The, the whole time I was with that person, it just felt like a very cold experience. Again, they're not the lovely person, a lot of experience. I was very fortunate to be with them, but it just, it felt kind of cold and sterile and clinical to me. And that's not what I wanted. So I had an opportunity to opt out of that contract. And when I did, my agent called me and said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, you know, we've been together for three years, a little over three years. And I just feel it's time to make a change. You know, my, my book hasn't been published. And they said, Stefan, you've never written a book. You don't understand how it works. Most People who write books, unknown author like you are, takes five, six, eight, ten years for the book to be released. And I said, well, I've put in three years into this process and uh, I want to make a change. I just feel in my gut and in my heart that I needed to make a change. And so I, I made a change without having another literary, literary, literary agent or publisher. I just, I just followed my gut instinct. And Chris, within a week after parting company with my literary agent through, um, through a series of very, very fortunate circumstances, I found another publisher. And not only did I find another publisher, I found a publisher where our first conversation, we had phenomenal chemistry, just a really good con conversation. And then the moment of truth was that I had to send them, of course, I had to send them the manuscript. And then we scheduled a follow-up conversation to discuss their feedback to the story. And in that follow-up conversation, my publisher, I could just tell, it was so obvious that he read every word, every line, every paragraph, every page from start to finish, because he was telling me really in-depth things from the book. And the only way he would know those things is having read it. And not only did he read the story, but he greatly respected the story. So first goal, write a book I could be proud of. Second goal, work with a publisher who respected the story. And my third goal with the book was to have a positive impact, to have a dynamic impact with one person in, in the world. I wanted to have a dynamic impact on one person. I figured those were three really achievable goals for somebody who has never written a book before. And about a week after the book came out, I got a message on Facebook Messenger from somebody who said the essence of what their message was, Stefan, I just finished reading your book and it has impacted me, impacted me in ways that I just can't express wow. in writing. Can you please call me? And, um, and they put their phone number. And so I called and the person was, first of all, they were shocked that I called. <laughs> uh, they didn't expect me to call. So I I figured I would just call, right? And as it turns out, Chris, it's a 73-year-old woman 
who lives in Virginia, and she's going through treatment for lung cancer. Wow. And so what she said to me was, Stefan, you know, when I read about your surprise open heart surgery and how you processed all of that, that devastating diagnosis and how you went through the surgery and how you went through the recovery and how all of that went through your brain and you viewed it not as something outside of you, not as something that happened to you necessarily, but as something that was a very important part of your life and a very important part of your development spiritually. And she said, I was, I was greatly moved by that. It's, it's helping me understand that my cancer surgery and my cancer treatment, it's, it's a part of my development on a spiritual level. But she said, that's not the only way that the book has impacted me. And she went on to tell me that her mother was a very abusive person. Wow. The woman said that her mother was physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive to this woman and her siblings. And she said it was really, really bad. Uh, things like Christmas Day beatings and all this wow. other kind of really horrific, horrific stuff. And she said, uh, you know, I'm 73 and my mother has been dead for many, many years. And I, I've hated her all my life. I, I moved out at the age of 18 because wow. I just couldn't wait to get out of that hellhole. And my mom's been dead and I've hated her all these years, including the years that she's been dead. And uh, she said, Stefan, I, I read your book and uh, you talked about how you forgave your father for being an abusive man and how you forgave your mother for, for being an alcoholic and for ruining so many family gatherings because she was drunk and how you took the time to explain in your book the reasons perhaps why they acted the way they did. You know, your father was deeply impacted by his five and a half years in a prisoner of war camp. How could he not be? Your mother was deeply impacted by spending the ages 16 to 20 as a slave laborer, and then your, your parents had this very turbulent marriage, and your father was abusive to her, and then he leaves your mother, and he leaves you, and he leaves your developmentally disabled sister, and then she starts drinking, and how you forgave your mother for that, and she said, I, I decided to forgive my mother, and she said, in the, in the moment that I decided to forgive my mother for all those years of horrific abuse, she said, I, I, just, I just broke down and cried, not only because I felt a release in the process of forgiving my mother, but I felt a release in letting go of all that anger and all that hurt that had been built up in my life for the first 73 years. And so, Chris, I had three goals for the book, and I, I accomplished all three within the first week. So all of these five-star reviews on Amazon. And there have been other people who've read the book and reached out to me privately, not as dramatic as that 73-year-old woman, but still dramatic in their own way, still powerful in their own way. And so um, this has been an interesting process for me too, writing the book and, you know, the, the nerves of, oh, geez, you know, what are people going to think when they when they read these things about my background? And the feedback that I've gotten uh, since the release of the book has been priceless. 
It's interesting, too, because I'm reading it knowing you personally, and you kept on leaving nuggets and teasing me, oh, wait till you read this chapter, wait till you read this chapter, and we won't mention it or spoil it, but there is a, what we would call a Marvel post credit scene to the book where something almost unbelievable happens. I'm reading it knowing you. Other people read it. It also reads as a good novel, a good book, a good story that you could kind of displace yourself and it's still an amazing read so for a first time author i mean i i couldn't believe it and um people would just be enthralled by the story like i said a quick read uh the way it is spaced and written um makes it very quick but like, like i said you're just thrown right into this story but it happens to be true it's it's your life and i think for a first time author uh, you do have a future in, in writing books. I mean, well, thank you, Chris. I will. I will say this: that the original manuscript was longer mm. than uh, the final product. The publisher and the editor that I was uh, blessed to work with—just tremendous people. And one of the things, uh, again, they they love the story, but they also said, "Stefan, we are living at a time where people have very short." attention right. spans. You've got a really good story here, but it does go down a couple of rabbit holes. And so they they suggested that we tighten the story up. And so the book is 24 chapters. There's about 12 or 15 pages of photos uh, in the middle of the book. And so we wanted, we came up with a story that reads very, very quickly. I've had people tell me that they've read this in two or three sittings. I've had some people say they read it in one day. Wow. So there are 24 chapters. They're relatively short chapters. And we get a lot in, in 24 chapters. And as you mentioned before, the story does weave from what I'll call the present time to going back to my parents' experiences in World War II and how they came to America. So it is, a, it is what I call a time weave between the current time and things that happened decades ago. And I, I, I have to say that I'm really pleased with how my editor worked with me to kind of weave those timelines within one another. It's not a, it's not a book that's written linearly, it does tell a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the book, but the story weaves between decades. Wow. Was that the same editor that turned uh, First Blood from a four-hour movie into a 90-minute <laughs> Rambo movie with five lines of uh, dialogue? I'm I'm not sure, but they would. I'm sure they would have done, done a good job. Uh, that's yeah, funny. Working with uh, Nico Eleven Publishing out of Wisconsin. And they are just phenomenal. And the cherry on the Sunday, Chris, is that they're really great people. They've got a lot of experience. They have a tremendous track record of success, and they're very humble about it. And they, I, I can't say enough about how they helped me make this story uh, move the way it does from start to finish. Amazing. And now, uh, for the people listening and watching, Stefan does have the voice of God. He is in a studio where he records commercials. I've used him for I, voiceover I work. God talks like this. <laughs> or John Fashenda. Like <laughs> John Fashenda from uh, NFL Films. Um, do you have any plans to do an audio version of the book for the people who just don't Absolutely. have the attention span to read? Uh, you know, so much has happened in the four weeks that the book has been out. It, the last four weeks have been an unbelievable whirlwind of good things. Uh, but it has been a whirlwind. And a few people have reached out and said, Stefan, 
you're a radio guy. Are you are you going to record an audio version of the book? And the answer is yes. And uh, I'll have news on that front very, very soon. Wow. And also, too, aside from the uh, audio version of the book, this could be a podcast series. This could be a television series. This could be a movie. Is that all based on the effort you put to shopping the book? Or is that just pie in the sky to be on the big screen? No, it's funny that you mentioned that, Chris. While we were editing the book, my editor said to me, you know, Stefan, this could be a series. This could be a movie. This could be something that is multi-seasons on Amazon, Amazon Prime or Netflix or Showtime. Right. And, and I said, really? <laughs> and, and again, I'm, I'm working with very, very experienced uh, literary editors and publishers. And uh, if they think so, then, then that's okay with me. It sounds pretty good to me. Nice. Uh, one of the last questions I had about the book is when you're writing it, did you learn anything about yourself? Not necessarily your parents, your family, just about you where reflecting on all of the words that are on paper, did you step away and, and just say, wow, I didn't realize that? Um, that is a great question, Chris. When the manuscript, manuscript was turned in and then we edited it down, my publisher and my editor came back to me and said, Stefan, okay, we're going to do one final read through. This is it. This is, this is the last step in the editing process. And again, this is them talking to me. They said, Stefan, we want you to just kind of step back, take a deep breath and read this book as if it wasn't yours. Mm. And that, that's a very challenging thing to do because as you, you read the book, you, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of emotion. Sure. You know, as, I, as I've said, it, it's, it's, it took me five years to write the book, but a lifetime to live it. And then I'm being given the, the task, the homework assignment of Stefan, read your book as if it isn't yours. <laughs> and so I had to, I had to step back and take a couple of deep breaths and read the book as if it was somebody else's book. And that was a really interesting process. Number one, it helped with the editing. I understood, not that I didn't understand, but I had a greater understanding of what my editor and publisher were saying in terms of focusing the story and making it much more narrow than it, than it originally was. Uh, but the other part, when I got done reading the book, I, I thought to myself, man, I have lived a very colorful life. <laughs> colorful is an understatement. Yeah, I've been extremely lucky, very fortunate, very, very blessed to have been in the career that I've been in, the media business for over 44 years, and to have interacted with the people that I have. And I'm still here to, to talk about it. One last thing about the book, and then we'll go into the lightning round. So we did talk about different aspects of your life, different aspects of your parents' life. Who would you say is the ideal person to read the book or enjoy the book? Who did you write this book for? from a, a consumer standpoint? You know, that's one of the, another good question, Chris. That was one of the things that I discussed with my editor and publisher. And so when I was writing the book, I was writing to get the story on paper, so to mm. speak. I, I wasn't writing the book um, with any one specific person in mind. 
in the editing process, in terms of putting the final version of the book together, right. we did have a specific target audience in mind, which helped with the editing process. And that's women age 35 and over. The book is the book is edited with women 35 and over in mind as the target audience. It's interesting you say that too, because if you look at your posts on social media and also the reviews, that audience is resonating with this book. So it looks Absolutely. like you get you guys get an A plus for uh, for editing the book to that style. Well, you know, Chris, again, this is the day and age of marketing. Yep. And you have to know your target audience. You have to know where your target audience is, and then you have to craft a message with resonates with your target audience. And I, I want to tell the viewers and the listeners that you have been very, very helpful in mm. marketing of the book. You and I spoke when the book first came out yep. and you have been helping us tremendously with social media posts to a very specific target audience. Now, I, I'm going to tell you something that, uh, that my publisher told me uh, yesterday. He called and he said that he had an update on the sales of the book. Now, I want to tell you that I told my publisher at the very beginning, I don't want to get daily or weekly right. updates. I don't want to be pinned down to a number. You mm -hmm. know, I, um, I challenge myself every day to be as motivated and focused as I can. And my feeling was, and my feeling is, if my publisher was saying, hey, you've sold X number of books, then I would be putting too much weight into what the sales number was. And right. I want it to be, I want it to have my edge. And again, it's just a, a mental game that I play with myself. Sure. I want it to have the mental edge every single day. I was acting, I, and I do act as if I've sold one copy. And that way, every day, I'm like, okay, I've only sold one copy. And it's a lot more than one, one <laughs> copy, but I'm approaching every day as if it's just one copy. Okay. I got to get this book out there. I've put five years of my life into yep. it. What do I need to do today to get it beyond one copy? And so when my publisher called me yesterday uh, to t give me a progress report, he said, Stefan, I know you told me not to tell <laughs> you the number, but let me put it this way. Your book has been out a month mm -hmm. and your book for an unknown author, your book has sold more in one month than what most other authors in a similar situation wow. sell in one year. Wow. So like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty good. And so I attribute, I attribute a lot of that, Chris, to the marketing that we're doing. It's, sure. as you know, because you're helping with the marketing, the marketing is very very tightly focused. And that's what we need to do in this day and age of specialization. You need to figure out who your target audience is, where that audience is, and you need to craft a message to get their attention. Because as we know, people are bombarded with commercial messages yep. every single day. So what message can we put out there that is going to penetrate the brain of our target audience and get them to pay attention to our message and not only pay attention to our message, but to respond to our message by buying the book. Again, I've put a lot of time and energy and effort and emotion into this book and now I want it out there. I want it into as many hands as possible. Yeah. And I think from a marketing standpoint, you're doing the whole thumb stopping marketing 
campaign of flashing the words on the video to get their attention, coupled with now great five-star reviews. And I think all of them are five-star reviews. So you're yeah, kind of- so far, so far. <laughs> it's from a, a social media marketing standpoint, and then again, on your personal, you know, LinkedIn and stuff like that, you're kind of hitting more people than your publisher probably expected because your audience is so big and then getting people that never even heard of you getting their attention that video was out you know even before the book was released you were promoting that video yeah it's uh the, the, everything has come together very well chris i'm very pleased with what's happened in in the first month but w one of the things that my publisher also said to me he said stefan this book is now your mission and that is that it's not just a one day or a one week or a one month or a two month or a three month or a one year thing. He said, because every day there is at least one person in this world who is having a crisis of faith and they're going to read your book and perhaps be given a perspective on how to restore their faith or how to have greater faith. Every day there is a person in this world who maybe comes from a dysfunctional family and they're going to read your book and perhaps it'll give them a perspective on how to process, mentally process, having been in a dysfunctional family. Because you talk about that in your book. He said, every day there is someone in this world who maybe went through something traumatic in their life where somebody close to them hurt them in some way. And when they read your book, perhaps you'll give them a very helpful perspective on forgiveness. So to those people who are just finding out and getting and reading your book, it's new and it's fresh to them every single day. And that's why, and again, my publisher said this to me, he said, that's why this book is now your mission. Your mission is to help those people through reading your book regarding the concepts of faith, family, forgiveness, spirituality, and coming to terms with and following God's will for our lives. It's interesting too. I mean, it, it's your mission, but I also, I told you on the phone, it's also your legacy now. So this book is always going to be on Amazon. It's always going to be findable via search. It's kind of like someone who's seeing you know godfather 2 for the first time or listening to Jimi hendrix play guitar for the first time now your book is essentially there forever and not only will you reap the you know royalty benefits and stuff like that but now you're also helping someone cope with a an instance so you're always going to be there for someone and it's amazing that you've put out essentially a piece of art that's now basically a piece of you that is exactly the way my publisher suggests that I look at it, that I look at it as a piece of art. And it's my leave behind, Chris. You know, in a way, this is my life's manifesto up to this point in time uh, in my life. And when I step back and I think about it, I said, man, that's a pretty heavy thing. <laughs> a <good laughs> lot way. to deal with, too. So we went over the book. We went over you. Let's do some silly lightning round quick questions, maybe okay. w within, you know, a, a sentence of answering them, if you can remember, or as fast as possible. And uh, I'll just rip off questions. And if you know the answers, or if, you know, you want to elaborate, feel free to do so. And uh, maybe we'll just put a, a timer. I'll look at the timer. Maybe we'll do like okay. 90 seconds or two minutes. Okay. Uh, if you could remember, what was your last meal before the heart surgery? 
something awful at the hospital. I can't remember what it was, but you know, I, I stayed at the Wild Cornell Medical Center in New York City, and that is one of the best hospitals in the mm. world. I had a phenomenal doctor. And one of the things about that whole experience, Chris, is I couldn't believe how bad the food was. Wow. <laughs> I can't remember, but whatever it was, it was bad. Glorified dog food. Okay, now on the flip side, when you were fully healed, what was the first thing that you ate? My wife's lasagna. I was in the hospital for 12 days, and more than anything, I wanted to get home to my own house and my own bed, but uh, I came home on a Sunday. I came home on Valentine's Day, February 14, wow. 2016, and my wife made lasagna because that's what I wanted. I could, I could taste it now just thinking of it. She makes a phenomenal lasagna, I'll tell you that. Nice. Uh, what was the first record that you played on the radio station? first record I ever played on the radio as a professional disc jockey was The Hustle by Van McCoy. <laughs> so that song was a number one hit in 1975. I got my start in professional radio as a DJ in 1977. So that song was two years old. It was considered an oldie. Wow. All right. So we talk about the 70s. Uh, what was your favorite British invasion band? My favorite British invasion band? I like Squeeze. Would they be considered <laughs> British invasion? I think so. What Wasn't Squeeze the first band that did Unplugged? MTV Unplugged was Squeeze? I, I'm, I'm not so sure. Are you talking about 60s British invasion? If that's this... the case, then it's the Beatles. Okay. And my next question was going to be Beatles or Rolling Stones, but I guess that answers it. Yeah, Beatles. Definitely the Beatles. Love the Stones. Crazy about the Beatles. Now, we've seen you on covers of magazines for you being a radio producer. Was there anyone that's, I guess, an A-list music artist that you personally were responsible of putting their song on radio for the first time? Uh, one of the, the one that jumps right off the bat is Mariah Carey. Uh, in 1990... She was, I think, 19 years old, mm. 20 years old, something like that. And I was out at a radio records convention out in Los Angeles, California. And CBS Records, Columbia Records, had a private reception for her where they invited um, a small group of radio station program directors. And so when you, uh, when you read my book and you go to the center of the book, you'll see a picture of me and Mariah Carey. And in that photograph, um, this is before Mariah Carey, before, be, yeah, there you go. There you before go. Mariah Carey became Mariah Carey and there's Vanilla Ice. <laughs> and so I would say, uh, yeah, I was one of the first radio station program directors in America to play a song called Vision of Love wow. by Mariah Carey. And that was where it started for her. And that was her first single because, um, what was her second single that she was, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, She's had so many hits. I know. I know. It, it, it's crazy. And that was 1990, which is already 31 years ago. We go into music. What was the other question that I had for you? Uh, fast pace. Who was the nicest person that you met from a music standpoint? Tina Turner, without a doubt. Tina Turner. We met her when uh, she was touring. This particular tour, she was the opening act for Lionel Richie. And Lionel Richie, I would put right up there with Tina Turner in terms of being nice. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Tina Turner, we met her. Uh, she was the opening act for Lionel Richie at the Hartford Civic Center, mid-80s. And uh, my wife, wife, Victoria, was, was with me 
uh, when we went backstage and Tina Turner and my wife, Victoria, they just kind of clicked. <laughs> and a year later, Tina Turner is back at the Hartford Civic Center, but this time she is there as the headliner. And wow. we go backstage to meet Tina Turner and my wife and I walk in and the first thing Tina Turner does when she see us, sees us walk into the uh, dressing room and she says, Victoria. So wow. she remembered my Do you remember? Wow. Think, of, think about this. All the people that Tina Millions. met, she's met and she remembers my wife's Victoria, my wife Victoria's name. So she was by far the, the best. And the, I, I, I've met a lot of nice people, but mm -hmm. she stands out as number one. So is Ike Turner the most unpleasant person you've met, or is there another unpleasant? I, I never met Ike Turner. When okay. I met Tina Turner, she was already past Ike Turner. Mm. Okay, so most unpleasant person that you've met. I don't know. That's You know, I've met so many nice people. I don't know if I'm going to name any names. I, I will <laughs> say, without revealing a name, there was a performer, a singer, who sang with a band. Uh, this person was one of the lead singers, not the only lead singer, but one of the lead singers in this very, very famous rock band. And she also had some pretty big, big hits on her own as a solo artist. And so uh, my wife and I go backstage to meet this singer. And we're just so excited because she, if I said the name, everybody would know who it is, but I'll, right. I don't want to say the name. And when I tell you why, what happened, you'll know why I don't want to say the name. Sure. But it was just such a disappointing experience because we got backstage and this singer was completely obliterated. I don't wow. know if they were drunk. I don't know if they were stoned. I don't know if it was a mix of being drunk <laughs> and stoned, but they were out of their minds. And it was just such a shock to see them in that condition because, you know, we see these performers right. and we build these things up in our mind. And then we say, Oh my gosh, I'm going to meet, I'm going to finally meet so-and-so mm -hmm. and we get backstage and she's acting like a zombie. That was disappointing. It's like the uh, wizard of Oz when the curtain is uh, pulled and you see the, right, the curtain was pulled back. You've told me a story about how, I think it was Marvin Gaye, where you uh, were a photographer for, or he let you uh, in the front row and you took a famous photograph of him. Is that, was it Marvin Gaye? Summer of 1976. Mm -hmm. It's the summer between high school and college. So I'd graduated from Holy Cross High School in Waterbury, Connecticut. I hadn't started my freshman year yet at the University of Bridgeport. And that summer... Uh, I was a music scene reporter for a weekly newspaper in Waterbury called the Waterbury Inquirer. And the first assignment that I was given was to go to the Marvin Gaye concert wow. at the Hartford Civic Center. And man, 1976, Marvin Gaye, man, the guy's a legend. <laughs> and this is the first show that I'm covering. So my, my assignment was to... Uh, write a review of the concert, and they also gave me a camera to take pictures. And some way, somehow, Chris, I didn't have backstage passes, but I was a friendly kid with this big <laughs> Afro haircut. Don't ask me how I did it, but I talked my way into getting backstage wow. before the show. And next thing I know, I'm in Marvin Gaye's dressing room with some other people.
right? I don't know who it is. It's Marvin. It's people in the band. It's whoever. And I'm in the dressing room and I'm 18 years old. And across the room is Marvin Gaye and our eyes meet. We lock eyes. And again, I'm 18 years old and I got this huge <laughs> Afro haircut and uh, Marvin Gaye kind of calls me over and, you know, he says, who are you? And I said, I'm Stefan from the Waterbury Enquirer, and uh, I'm here to cover tonight's show. And this is my first assignment. So without missing a beat, Marvin looks to the gentleman standing next to him. And I'm, I'm guessing it's his road manager, whoever the road manager was. And he said, let's make Mr. Stefan here the official photographer of tonight's concert. Wow. So what they did is all of the other press were in the pit in front of the stage. And here I am, this 18-year-old kid. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? I have no idea what I'm doing. And Marvin Gaye and his road manager have me standing on the side of the stage. Wow. And so I took a bunch of what turned out to be priceless photographs, not, not that they're grateful, they're priceless to me. I've got all these photographs of Marvin Gaye in concert at the Hartford Civic Center and some of the photographs he's turned and he's, again, he's on stage, but he's looking directly at me and he's kind of making all these different wow. moves. And uh, again, Chris, I had no idea what I was doing, but I had a great time doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads me to my other question. You've seen plenty of people live. Who's the one that just steals the show for you every time that they go out there? Stevie Wonder. Every time wow. I've seen Stevie Wonder in concert, it's like mm -hmm. going to church. It's like going to a gospel revival. Wow. And just incredible. Interesting. Now let's uh, fast forward to normalcy in this country and in the state. You get to go to Madison Square Garden. Who would you like to see open up the garden back to normal? Oh, Billy Joel. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I think that's set in stone. They, they have that date, I think. Yeah, with, without a doubt, it has to be Billy Joel. They have to bring Elton John back. Mm -hmm. uh, the last time I saw Elton John... I'm guessing it was three years ago. He was on his farewell tour. Right. I've seen Elton John in concert more than I've seen any other act. And when I saw Elton at Madison Square Garden, let's call it, was it 2018, 2019? I'm not, mm -hmm. I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but it was during his farewell tour, which was going to last like two or three years. He was incredible. That show that I saw at the Garden um, I've seen Elton at the top of his game in concert, and I've seen him do shows where he was just kind of going through the motions. Right. This concert at the Garden was one of the best performances I've ever seen him give. And he considers, from what I understand, he kind of considers Madison Square Garden. I think it's his favorite venue. Mm. So you, when you reopen Madison Square Garden, you have to open with Billy Joel. You got to do it. Yep. Some way they got to find a way to bring uh, Elton John back. And one of the most amazing concerts that I have ever seen at the Garden is U2. Interesting. Okay. Just a tremendous, tremendous show. You know, the last time I saw U2 at the Garden, everybody is standing on their feet from the very first song to the end of the song and to the end of the show, I should, I should say, 
just an incredible experience. They are phenomenal live, you two. Did you see you two during a, a specific album release or was it a greatest hits? When did you see them? I saw them, I would say the best concert that I saw you two was on the Vertigo tour. Okay. All right. So early 2000s? Uh, early to mid 2000s, 2005 mm -hmm. was the date of that concert. So I, I believe the album was How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Right. Beautiful Day was on there? Or is that Vertigo? I'm pretty sure it's Vertigo. I saw you too. <laughs> Trivia. I saw you <laughs> too. I, <laughs> I saw you too when they opened up uh, what we call MetLife Stadium or what I call Giant Stadium. And if you remember, the trains weren't working. So after the concert, we were all stranded. So that's my. And the, the centerpiece looked like a spider. Uh, I don't know which tour that was, but that was my um, experience with you two. And again, I, I went with my dad. My dad loves them. Remember listening to Joshua Tree when I was little, so um, just very few real rock bands nowadays that are still out there that are still, mm -hmm. you know, taking the stage and rocking out. I, I think there's probably a handful of rock bands that either started in 2000s or 2010 um, that do what all of these bands do. It, it's a different landscape from a music standpoint. It is. I, I was t telling one of my friends from a music standpoint, we went from bands wanting to put out big albums to bands putting out a good song or music video to now bands just working on 15 seconds so they could get the social media clip or the TikTok clip. It's just the production of music has changed uh, over the past I was reading 15 a very years. interesting article recently that it's not even about putting together albums anymore. Uh, artists are now releasing songs and then releasing multiple versions of that right. same song so there's like five or six or ten different versions of the same song and that's what they're that's the the currency if you will that's what they're dealing with and there's really no no thought of an album or maybe there is a thought but the album's not going to be out until five or six songs later so it's really all about the song now and multiple versions of the song it's interesting you say that too because i was gifted i believe it was like the latest ozzy or black sabbath album for christmas i took it home i didn't have anything in my house to play the cd my computer doesn't have a cd player my car doesn't have a cd player and it's i, I don't know we're, we're skipping generations so fast with music where if it's not on our phone the second it's released correct you know i, I feel bad for the records behind you the record stores it's uh, they're becoming extinct very fast. So I will give you the last 30 to 90 seconds if you want to promote yourself. Where could people find you? I'll put all of the links down below, but uh, do you want them to go straight to Amazon, the website? The floor is yours for the next 90 or so seconds. Well, first of all, Chris, thank you again for having me on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope the people listening and watching uh, have heard at least one thing that has had a positive impact on them. If somebody would like to reach out to me via email, then they're welcome to do so. It's Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N, Stefan at StefanRadio.com. Stefan at StefanRadio.com. You will find me. Uh, if you should so desire, you can find me on Facebook, you can find me on in Instagram, you can find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Tumblr. So I'm pretty easy to find. 
And if you have an interest in purchasing my book, I would be deeply honored if you were to purchase my book and to read my book. Uh, it's available on Amazon, both in uh, print version, and it's also available on Kindle. It will soon be available on audiobook. But right now, if you want the book right now, it is available on in print and on Kindle. And I would uh, be greatly appreciative of the fact uh, of anybody purchasing the book because a portion of the proceeds are going to a charity, a not-for-profit, a 501c3. That is very important to my heart, and it's Jane's Home Foundation for Developmentally Disabled Adults. And if anybody uh, would like more information, then it's available at Jane's, J-A-N-E-S, janeshome.org, janeshome.org. And as I said, the foundation uh, provides daily living services to developmentally disabled senior age adults in my hometown of Waterbury, Connecticut. So it is something that is very close to my heart. And as I said, a portion of the proceeds from the sale of my book are going to Jane's home really are doing God's work. And I can't thank you enough to do this. Like I said, this was just a, a thought on the whim with your voice and with your presence. And obviously with the book, Especially I said, since the other people you wanted on couldn't come on. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. John Tesh was busy, actually. He's there over your shoulder. But uh, yeah, I mean, Stefan. <laughs> I, I think an hour flew by. You're probably one of the most people. Wow. Yeah, I uh, see. Yeah, an hour and 20 minutes. Probably someone I'm probably most comfortable with uh, around, and maybe I will start with my friends, but what better way to, to give me an hour of your time? Uh, I appreciate it. And we'll see what happens with this. So if, like you said, with the book, if one person reacts to this and enjoys it and, and finds you and buys your book, what I've done is, is, is God's work. So uh, that's what I'm Thanks hoping for. for. Me on, man. Thank you. And everyone follow Stefan below. All the links will be down there. And uh, thank you again.